Hello, hello, Axapod listeners. This is Brandon Shu, your host of Axapod. We appreciate you being here. Well, I'm really excited for today's episode. I had a chance to interview this very interesting person that I've been looking forward to having on the pod for quite some time. Been following him for quite some time on LinkedIn and what they've been doing in their group internationally for mobility. And I'm talking, of course, about Kirsten Heineke, who leads the Center for Future Mobility at McKenzie. Kirsten has a great background in the automotive space and has evolved, like many of us have, to contemplate some of these other form factors and mobility, whether it's the micromobility space, uh, the shared ride space. We've on the pod, we're going to talk about flying taxis and the autonomous rideshare vehicles. And I'm sure there's much, much more in the works as well. Obviously, last mile delivery is a big deal right now. And everybody's trying to corner that market and figure out the best way to solve it. But today in today's episode, we feature a lot of micromobility discussion simply because that's where a lot of our contacts and shared experiences kind of meet here in uh, Kirsten and I's background. But I really hope you enjoy the pod. I I think it'll enlighten a lot of folks when it comes to things like fundraising and profitability and just getting a better grasp on what is going on in the micromobility space today. So I want to thank my guest and enjoy the pod. All right. Welcome back, Axipod listeners. I got a special guest today. My name is Brandon Shu. I'm the host of Axipod. Today with me, we have Kirsten Heineke from McKenzie in their uh, future of mobility practice. Uh, Kirsten, uh, great to have you on Axipod. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Very much looking forward to it. So Kirsten, you and I kind of we kind of work in, I guess, some sort of parallel fashion. We both do a lot of work in the mobility space. Obviously, I'm on the insurance side and you're more on the consulting side, but very interested to hear your take on a lot of what's going on in the space right now. You know, we look at it from a risk standpoint, but we're always interested in what the future of mobility looks like and how that's going to be disruptive or supplemental or or what have you to what's going on in the space. So I'd love to hear just your background and the genesis of how you came to be the kind of the, the practice leader in, in this space. Thank you so much. Yeah, happy to share a bit of that. So I did a lot of automotive work with automotive OEMs and suppliers when I started at McKinsey. And at a certain point in time, we noticed that there's a disruption coming to the automotive industry that is bigger than anything we have seen before. And that is also too big for our traditional ways of dealing with changes, dealing with trends and dealing with disruptions. So therefore, we said we need to do something different in our approach, how we tackle this, founded the Center for Future Mobility, because we also noticed that this is obviously not a disruption that's only going to affect automotive, but will also affect anything that moves really, and therefore have an impact on other industries as well. And, and that's sort of how the notion of the ACES, autonomous driving, connected vehicles, electrification, shared mobility came to life. But then we also said we we need to talk about future of urban mobility. We need to talk about the third dimension. We need to talk about completely new form factors and especially also about completely new business models. And now we have a team of globally much more than 200 people that do very little else but work on the future of mobility working with clients from anything between a pre-seed startup to a blue chip company 
and working on a broad range of topics across multiple industries, anything really from insurance, oil and gas, telco, automotive, still a huge chunk of our work and so on. That's interesting. I'm curious how, so yeah, you mentioned you work with startups to large blue chip companies. I'm curious how you normally get engaged. And I guess this might be a little off track, but what does that typically look like for you when somebody brings you into the mix? So for us, it's really, it's it's another broad range of things, how we do stuff. So there is the occasional help with an investor story, market modeling or so that we do for startups and scale-ups. We help companies prep for IPO. We help companies uh, build new businesses that are adjacent to what they currently do. And here, it doesn't matter if it's an incumbent or a disruptor or a startup. But then we also help companies really optimize their operations. And that can be anything, again, from a large car company trying to turn profitability on electric vehicles, but also a mobility service provider that is looking at the profitability levels of its operations in different cities and wants to make sure that all of the cities are profitable or maybe some cities are well, not on the roadmap anymore, aren't part of the business anymore. And that's a broad range of recipes, like we call them, and things we bring to our clients. And this cuts across all of these different types of clients and company sizes and company maturity levels. Interesting. So this might be a little controversial, actually, for the space, but I'm very interested in the profitability model of the shared scooter space. Particularly, I'm guessing Europe is probably similar. Uh, but I know in the U.S., it's been a struggle for anybody from the limes and birds of the world all the way down. It's obviously a very asset-intensive business. It takes a lot of maintenance. You know, there's a lot of parts of the business that you know. I'm sure a lot of the operators would like to be more streamlined and like to be more autonomous. Like, for instance, gathering the scooters and rebalancing the scooters at night. I know that's a huge pain in the neck for a lot of these operators. Do you have any insight into just how that industry looks today versus where you think it might go just based on the fact that it is a very difficult business model to be profitable in? Yeah, happy to talk about profitability for micromobility. I think we do see a couple of players, so a couple of niche players or players with smaller operations are focusing on very dedicated cities that claim to be profitable. And I, I would agree with them. I would believe them. I think other players we've talked to, especially the larger ones, they're profitable on an individual city level. So they have in their portfolio several cities that are profitable because there is few competitors because the cities have an operational guideline that allows companies to actually turn a profit. And also because it's a city where micromobility is being adopted very nicely, either because the customer segment is just very fitting and it has a, a good population for it, or because the city has invested significantly into biking infrastructure that also is beneficial for micromobility usage. I think the key question is uh, how far away sort of are these at scale players from profitability and is it inherently profitable? And we strongly feel that yes, micromobility is inherently profitable because the scooter is now, or the, the different scooters we have, the different scooter types we, we see are now in a generation where the vehicle lasts so long that you can actually generate a sufficient amount of rides. I think um, operations have been optimized using swappable batteries and a couple of other things to reduce the um, amount that needs to be spent on recharging a vehicle, on moving vehicles around. And I think adoption is, is at a level that's still growing massively, but it's at a good level at the moment, right? So I think we're going to see these players become profitable at scale and on a global level in the next 
12, 18 months, maybe a bit longer, maybe a bit shorter for individual players. Depends a bit how hard they're pushing on profitability. But we do believe that this is, is going to happen and that most of these players are going to turn profitable and therefore also have a very bright and very long-term future. So, like I said before, one of the most... That, and by the way, that's great. Uh, one of the most difficult areas is the rebalancing at least from my perspective, one, one from an insurance perspective, it's very challenging, but also just, I know from a logistics, manpower, everything else perspective, it's challenging to go rebalance scooters. I know there's technology out there that people are looking at to autonomize or, or what have you. Although I, I think most people, including me, would find it strange to see a scooter just driving itself back to its position. But hey, that's the world we live in. But do you think that it's going that direction or do you think that the industry is going to continue down the path of using people to, to get these back in the position that they should be in? I think the automating these scooters to make sure they sort of rebalance themselves and move themselves around, I think that's, that's a great idea. I think it's especially a great idea in, in cities where the government has significant restrictions on what they do with a scooter that isn't parked properly or that shouldn't be where it is, sort of. I do believe that rebalancing it with people and the people can be either the users themselves or people paid for by the company or simply not rebalancing them is something that is going to be the future, right? So I think uh, given the longevity of the scooters and given the fact how sort of a trip or the revenue you're generating with a trip compares to the actual depreciation cost of a vehicle, you can afford as a scooter company to have a scooter sit unutilized for a day for longer in certain periods of time, if sort of it isn't parked illegally or isn't sort of somewhere where nobody will ever find it again, right? So I think finding sort of the right level of the scooters that you simply don't touch, even if they're not moving for days, is going to be a big part of, of these companies turning a profit. And I'm, I'm not sure if anybody has found the right algorithm yet. And if they have, they probably wouldn't share it with us. But I do believe that the truth ultimately is rather going to be in less rebalancing and in making sure, unless you anyhow have to pick up the vehicles for maintenance and so on, right? But then also in probably less automation rather than all of these vehicles being able to rebalance themselves and move around freely. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, one of the areas just as risk management consultant that I see coming more frequently is kind of this membership model versus, you know, a, a free floating or dockless model. Or maybe you can have kind of a, a hybrid of both. But, you know, you see companies out there going direct to consumer looking for, you know, membership or subscription style versus, you know, the, the kind of the issues that occur right now with Docless. Have you or McKinsey done any significant kind of look into those two form factors or those two methodologies of, of uh, getting the scooter into the hands of the kind of the rider one versus the other? We've looked at a couple of variations. We've looked at dockless versus docked. We've looked at sort of virtual docking, if you will. So you can do uh, a micro geofencing and simply allow the scooters to park only in certain very selected locations, right? We see that already in a couple of cities. I had that in uh, Tel Aviv when, when I was there in, uh, in, in May and found it, well, obviously cleaning up the act a lot, but on the other hand, also a bit difficult, especially when those sort of virtual docking zones are a bit too far apart or a bit too far from the destination where you're going. But I think these, these combinations will happen, right? So I think ultimately we're going to see certain parts where there is physical docking stations, certain parts of the city where there's going to be virtual docking stations where you can simply park the vehicle only 
not in front of the entire office building as an example, but maybe only in like a one meter by five meter area or so. And then they, by definition, have to be parked in a, in a certain order in order for the rider to be, end, to be able to end the ride. I think it will be a combination. And then there will be some parts of the cities where you simply don't need virtual docking. So in the uh, residential neighborhood where I live, for example, unless the scooters are sort of thrown uh, somewhere or parked sort of um, by choice somewhere in a, in a bad way, they're not really in the way. So there is no problem. And then what we did look at is sort of subscriptions and other ownership models. So do people prefer to share? Do they prefer to subscribe? Do they prefer to own certain vehicles? And we do believe that all of them are going to grow massively. Yes, for micromobility, ownership or subscription makes a ton of sense because the vehicles are so, quote-unquote, inexpensive, especially when you're replacing your car by micromobility, that it's okay to own them. It's even okay to own multiple of them because for the price of a car, you can build up your entire portfolio of micromobility devices and simply have them at your disposal. And also the space consumption is, is sort of okay, right? What I could see as, a, as an idea sort of for a couple of these companies is to say, look, we're creating by having a subscription, by having a club, a certain sense of loyalty that makes people also park their vehicles in a better, in a better way, right? And, and make sure that they sort of take care of this as a community. And I could actually see that work quite well because same as in, in an Uber or same as in many other ride-hailing apps, you also have a score as a rider, Right. And if sort of your rider score is low because you're behaving badly, you might have trouble finding uh, somebody who takes you from A to B. And I think this kind of community sense also definitely makes sense for micro mobility. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've definitely seen the subscription model grow in the last couple of years. And I think the barriers to entry are also quite a bit easier. You know, you're not growing your business based on winning permits, you're growing your business based on, you know, marketing just like every other company does and trying to get the best product out to the market. So that's, I think that's very interesting. But it'll be, ultimately, it'll be fun to see kind of where we end up and where, where the balance is in the space. You know, one area that I, I know that is growing concern to, and we'll stick to micromobility for, for the moment, then we can go into some other form factors here. But one area that I know is, is growing concern is, you know, fundraising, especially in an environment of higher rates, seems like that might become more difficult. Have you kind of garnered any insight that would support that thesis or where, what are you seeing right now in the space? So we're seeing companies being a bit more worried about the next fundraising round than they probably were about the last one. I think that's, that's one bit. We also do see that the companies that do have a good business plan, that have a good path to profitability, talking again about micromobility, that they are still finding funding. The valuations might not be skyrocketing as much as they did in the last couple of years. And it might be that there's also a bit of influence from the companies that have public valuations on the valuation of those that don't yet have public valuations because they're still privately owned. But we still remain confident that the sort of winners of tomorrow, if you will, will find funding. And yes, it might be that one or two companies or maybe a bit more, right, will not find funding. And therefore, we see a further consolidation driven by driven by the climate in, in, in the overall funding market, but it's not going to cause a massive disruption to the industry or we're not going to see sort of the end of micromobility. I think the other piece is many of these companies are able now to also do debt financing based on their track record and, and based on the, type, on the type of business that they're having. So I think this is there are other vehicles and some companies have already shown that they're able to do this and have done a good track record there. 
on that. Worried so much about the financing and the funding for the micromobility industry for the next one or two years or so. I think that there is going to be a sufficient amount of players that will survive and funding or be able to finance themselves otherwise. Key word there stuck out to me. It was players surviving. Obviously, there's a lot of players right now in the micromobility space. It certainly facilitates a competitive environment, which is good. But you wonder that wide spectrum of you know players. Where do you see that going? Do you, do you see? Obviously, there's been consolidation. Do you see further consolidation, or do you think that we're at a point right now where stratified enough? to create competition, but not enough to create further consolidation. So I'd say we're probably at a level that is as, I'm not going to say as consolidated as it gets, but we're getting close. We're getting there. So I think it might be one or two larger mergers, larger acquisitions happening in the entire space, right? And then that might be it. And then we'll see this this constellation where we have a couple of players that are at global reach almost, right? A couple of players that are dominating individual regions or countries because of legislation, because of background, because of track record. And then we're going to see a bunch of companies that will be in very niche markets, quite successful, having a certain type of city, a certain part of a country and so on, right? Very focused. And these will ultimately also continue their operations, right? Because ultimately the gain for a company to acquire another competitor is quite limited at a certain point in time because you're just taking somebody out from the market, right? And then you're paying a lot of money, but everybody's basically gaining from it, theoretically at least. And the other piece is whenever you actually are buying up another company in another geography, it gets you, yes, more scale, but the scale gain or sort of the benefit from even having more scale decreases over time, right? And I think many of the of the companies would actually look at, in our mind, profitability now over scale, because the large ones have sufficient scale, the smaller ones are never going to get that scale. So it's rather now a time to flip the switch, if you will, and and put profitability over massive scale gains, unless, of course, there is the exciting opportunity that presents itself. But I do think that we're getting close to sort of the consolidated status of the of the industry. Profitability over scale, I like that. We might have just found our title for the episode. So let's see. <laughs> Last question about micromobility, and it's a selfish one. So I've been pushing, or at least not pushing, but observing the space for a while and looking at a delta between micromobility and standard auto transportation. Obviously, you buy a car, you're required to buy insurance as part of the uh, as kind of part of the barrier to entry of owning a car and for the safety of everybody on the road. We haven't seen at least in any ubiquitous fashion, an insurance product that is out there in the U.S. at least. There there are rider liability uh, coverages in Europe and places like the U.K., like Paris, Germany, uh, rider liability is baked into their motor liability. So they view scooters as automobiles, which I think makes some sense. Have you, have you thought about that at all? What are your predictions for from a you know jurisdictional or, or or government standpoint in the US specifically the need to kind of cover that gap there so i think to me the key question is how many people do we already have today and will we have in the future that aren't sort of own car centric for their mobility needs right so that don't 
start from a point where they have a car that they need to insure and then they have something else on top of it, but rather use a car maybe as part of a car sharing program and then use other things, right? And I think that is definitely a quote-unquote product gap that will be very attractive for some companies to fill, right? Because people will want peace of mind in whatever mode of transport they're using. And I also do think that people will want to take sort of the, the benefits or the, the concept of being a good, if you will, car driver, right? With a very low uh, payment for certain, uh, for, for insurance, simply because of good behavior. They will want to take that benefits also in my mind for the form factors, right? And in a world where we'll see less car ownership and people being less own car centric, people will still want to have A, be covered, right? And B, then take those benefits to the other modes. And I don't, I'm not an insurance expert. I don't exactly know what that product is going to look like, but I do think that is an exciting opportunity to um, also provide coverage for those folks that may not necessarily want to own a car, but still want to be moving around a lot by car and with other form factors as well. Yeah, we've been looking at it carefully and actually have a product that we can offer. But I think the big difference is the mandate right now. And I won't bore you with, the, you know, in the US, there's a mandate. You have to buy insurance if you own a car. There's not that compulsory level of requirement right now from the government as it pertains to as it pertains to scooters or micromobility. So I agree. I think there's a huge opportunity, but we probably need at least something to flip that switch there to get people excited to want to buy it. I just got a couple of questions left. Uh, I like to keep these episodes, you know, half hour, you get people running for the hills. Uh, uh, but this has been great. I really appreciate it. Um, I know you're working on other things too. Pre-call here, you mentioned a couple other areas that you're working on that I, I th- I'm sure that the listeners would be very interested in. I think flying taxis really caught my ear, but what else are you working on there in the uh, Center for Future Mobility? So maybe two things that I am personally excited about. You mentioned flying taxis. I'm in London today and the commute from the airport to the office wasn't really a pleasure. So I think I spent 55 minutes on the road. Yes, I could have taken the subway that would have taken about the same time, but this is something that can actually be solved with flying taxis, right? So there's all of these electric helicopter-like vehicles and all of these companies out there that are pushing for these vehicles to become a reality quite short term. And I think this is something that is a good balance between energy consumption, time you gain, money you spend, but then also pollution or lack thereof because they don't make any noise and they are locally emission-free. So I think these vehicles definitely have a bright future for these selected use cases where a certain stretch of roads needs to be covered in a certain rather low time and then people have a certain willingness to pay for it. I think the other piece to me that's extremely exciting is pooled robo-shuttles, so pooled shared autonomous vehicles, because I do believe that this can completely revolutionize how we go from A to B. It might also be able to save London's problem, because if you had not um, millions of vehicles in a city like London, but if you actually were pooling people into these shared vehicles, people could A, use the time and would have very limited detours, but uh, it would definitely make much more efficient and much more effective use of our road network. And I'm working together with a city in the uh, the Nordics in, in Europe, so in, in Scandinavia, that is really looking to completely revolutionize their transport system by introducing these vehicles. And I'm excited to see how much this is going to change the way how we get from A to B in cities and make it much more convenient, much less space-consuming, much more ecological, but also reduce congestion very, very massively in, in these cities. Yeah, I've seen some headlines, particularly out of London, I think, with some of my insurance 
partners there. There's a few companies. I know one, I think, based in London that's that's doing that. Yeah, very interesting. I don't I don't love that airport. I don't love that Heathrow to, to London trek either. It's not it's not any fun. And just getting around in London, I mean, if you take a cab for, you know, two take an Uber for two miles, I mean it's it can take you. I remember one specific time being in London going from uh, one side to the other taking me like two hours to get to a lunch. And I was very, very late to a meeting. So it could definitely have some huge benefits there and a lot of different places. But getting in a flying taxi, that'll be interesting. I'm sure there's a lot of governmental lobbying and things that have to go into that to make that actually work within city limits. Absolutely. So I think the, the certification of that is, is ongoing as we speak, right? So there are, in some cases, new type classes need to be created in order for the vehicles to be certified. And the um, different uh, associations are working on that for the players. And uh, yes, I obviously, we'll need to have a completely different system how we govern the airspace over cities. But the beauty of that is the airspace that these vehicles will fly in is actually pretty much unoccupied at the moment. And Except for some cities in the world, there aren't that many helicopters. So I think this is, yes, it does take some regulation, but it's not that we need to take something else out of the way to have these vehicles. It's rather being able to sort of fill that space and provide a good way of how, you, how we can orchestrate that without creating any, any damage to the system or any additional congestion in the air. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, great, Kirsten. Thank you very much for being on Pod. For people that want to you know, reach out to you or get engaged because you're probably going to have a lot of listeners that are reaching out to you after this show because we're, we have a very, very loyal listener base. How can people get in contact with you? So I think the best way is probably LinkedIn. I hope I'm allowed to say that. If not, you can also search for the McKinsey Center for Future Mobility on Google and you will find our website with all of the insights and very much looking forward to having you reach out to me or to my colleagues. We're always there with a couple of opinions, data, we have our own crystal ball. Not sure how accurate it is, but very much looking forward to to being reached out to. Well, great. Well, really appreciate being on Exapod. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.